And now, a warrior for the Word of God and the Constitution of the United States, a Marine Corps veteran, a Harvard-trained attorney, Bishop of the Called Churches, and founder and president of STAND. Staying true to America's national destiny, the voice of the awakening, your host, Bishop E. W. Jackson. And I am he. Great to be with you again today. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. Uh, I was not with you yesterday because my church has sponsored for the last 22 years a Martin Luther King Leadership Breakfast, and we held that yesterday, 10 a.m., and uh, if you want to check that out, you can find that on our Facebook page, E.W. Jackson SR, or you can go to bishopewjackson.tv, or you can go to our, our app, the E.W. Jackson app, and you'll find it there. Now, it's a two-hour program, and you may want to fast forward through it and get to the speeches that happen at the very end, and you might want to see the awardees. But I am really thankful to God that we do this breakfast because every year it, it seems to me that it stands out more and more as, as an oasis of, of godly wisdom and common sense and decency in the midst of, of racial demagoguery and division and just outright irrationality and just craziness. And it just, it seems to me that more and more um, we have to call attention to the, the legacy of Dr. King and what he envisioned for the country as opposed to what we're seeing from those who claim to wear the civil rights mantle, which they don't. By the way, I think that we should declare the civil rights movement dead. We don't need a civil rights movement. We need a civil responsibility movement now. We need a CRM not not uh, not a, a CR. We need a civil responsibility movement. That that kind of CRM, I should say, not the CRM of civil rights, but the CRM of civil responsibilities, because I think the civil rights movement has done its job, and every American can get up every single day of your life and do pre pretty much whatever you want to do with your life. If you want to be a bum, you you can certainly do that, <laughs> but but if you want to do something productive with your life, you want to get educated, you want to work, uh, you, you want to start a business, you can do it here. And anybody who says you can't is lying. So I talked a little bit about that in, in my speech, which is the very end of the breakfast when I make an appeal for support for our school, the Maximum Potential Christian Academy, for our youth center, named after my beloved father, the William Jackson Youth Center. And we also give scholarships to young people every year. And we gave out scholarships yesterday. But I talked a little bit about uh, this subject um, in my sermon. In fact, really, my sermon was entitled for Sunday, What Do You See? And I talked a little bit about Dr. King's vision, how different it is than what we are seeing. So let me just share a little bit of that with you. Um, so we know that I have a dream speech, of course. Dr. King said, I have a dream that... One day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Well, you don't hear talk like that these days, do you? I have a dream that one day our nation will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. 
Well, you don't hear anything about freedom at all coming out of the left and the mainstream media. You hear a lot about social justice, which frankly is the absence of freedom because it's really taking from some to give to others and redefining rights to favor some over others, which is not freedom and justice at all. He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And the thing that jumps out at me most about that is you can't, that doesn't apply except when you're looking at individuals as individuals rather than as representatives of some group. Right? I mean, so clearly his vision was one in which every individual is seen on his or her own merit. Not on the basis of, oh, well, you belong to this group and therefore you must be like this and therefore I respond to you this way. No, 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 no. But here again, that's completely completely subsumed in the collectivist mindset. Now you're part of the group. He said, I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Very different than the tone we hear today, isn't it? And here's something that some things he said that were not said in the in major speeches that he gave and therefore don't get much attention at all. But Dr. King said this, for example, the goal of our movement is redemption and reconciliation, the creation of the beloved community. Hate tears down and destroys. Love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. And he said, it is this type of spirit and love that transform opposers into friends. It is this type of understanding and goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men. Well, you don't hear much about exuberant gladness, and you don't certainly don't hear much about miracles in the hearts of men. Uh, but that was the spirit that Dr. King brought to the whole effort to address the historic legacy of, of slavery that our, our country inherited. And that's why I'm so, so grateful that God used this man. He wasn't perfect any more than our founding fathers were perfect. But, you know, it's interesting. We'll overlook imperfections in some people, but we won't overlook them in others. Uh, but we know Dr. King had his share of problems, and, and we as Christians shouldn't pretend otherwise. But still, I believe God, by his grace, used him to advance a vision for the country, which if we were to continue on that track— had we continued on that track, I think we'd be a very different country today. We wouldn't have CRT. We wouldn't have the 1619 Project. We wouldn't have all this Black Lives Matter nonsense. We wouldn't have it because we wouldn't be viewing ourselves as people in their own little enclaves, in their own little corners, their own little silos, fighting people in their silos. We view ourselves as Americans. We'd be dealing with each other as individuals. But, of course, that's not where the left is trying to take us, uh, and if we don't stand up against what they're doing, uh, they will take us completely off the cliff and, and into the abyss. Uh, and, and frankly, folks, as I've said many times, I'm not going. <laughs> and if, if I have anything to say about it, America is not going. Uh, speaking of, of that kind of vision, we are in the middle right now of a crime crisis in our country. We really are. 
we really are, folks. I've got a guest coming up to talk to us a little bit about Roe v. Wade and and about uh, what you know. He, this is this is the we've got the pro life march coming up here shortly. Um, I believe it's coming up on Friday, as a matter of fact. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But I want to come back also to talking about this crime crisis because it is it is tragic. It is heartrending. I'm sure that all of you heard about this young lady brutally stabbed, you know, trying to do something with her life, getting her education, graduate student, working at a furniture store, and some ne'er-do-well criminal walks in and stabs the poor child to death. Now her family's got to deal with the loss of their child. Brianna Kupfer, uh, just just murdered. And of course, sadly, she is one of many, many, many victims of this, this out-of-control spike in crime that we're experiencing in our country today. Um, that's not a beloved community, folks. And part of the reason it's happening is so many, so much of this is being justified because of poverty and racism and this, that, and the other. And it's really a problem of the heart. Back in the moment. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. It's election season, so we are hearing the word gerrymander once again. The term gerrymander comes from the early part of the 19th century. Eldridge Gerry, the governor of Massachusetts, supported legislation that redrew the districts of his party. One district looked like a salamander, so his opponents called it a gerrymander. The term stuck and is with us to this day. Democrats have been in full gerrymander panic because they fear that many of the state legislatures, which are Republican-controlled, would draw districts that would favor Republicans rather than Democrats. But the latest analysis by a left-leaning group concludes that Democrats may have more of an advantage in congressional seats. Data for Progress found that 212 House seats may be to the left of the country this year. That's up from 203 in 2020. The solution proposed in many states is to have independent redistricting commissions. Looking at the impact of these redrawn districts makes it hard to accept that they are truly independent. For example, the California Commission would eliminate three of the 11 Republican seats in the House of Representatives. The New York Commission would cut the number of Republican seats to three from eight. Democrats like to point to Texas that is gaining two seats due to the increase in the 2020 census. Both new seats will likely go to Republicans due in part to the fact that both houses of the Texas legislature are controlled by Republicans. But just the opposite took place in legislatures in Illinois, Maryland, and Oregon that are controlled by Democrats. In an ideal world, perhaps computers should draw fair representative boundaries, but don't believe all the rhetoric being tossed around about one party or the other carving out partisan boundaries. Both parties do it. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Critical Race Theory, go to viewpoints.info slash CRT. Hi, I'm Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. The fastest growing crime in America and across the world is sex trafficking. We're talking about millions of lives every day, even children. Do you know the average age of a child who is trafficked is 12 years old? 
I know it's not a fun subject to talk about, but God has called the church to take its blinders off and help end this human tragedy. Eight Days of Hope has decided to be a part of that solution. God's opened up a door for us to partner with existing ministries, and that's where we bring skilled volunteers to renovate, rebuild, or remodel facility for survivors to receive the emotional, physical, and spiritual healing they need. If you're skilled in any trade and you want to use your gifts for a greater purpose, please contact us at safehouse at 8daysofhope.com. We would love for you to join us on our next project. For more information about the ministry of 8 Days of Hope, please go to 8daysofhope.com. That's 8daysofhope.com. The Awakening. The Awakening. Download and listen at your leisure with the podcast page at AFR.net. Now, back to our host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Well, folks, last week uh, we talked about preborn. We talked about the importance of saving babies whose mothers may feel distraught, trapped, and think that the only way to get out of the situation is to kill their unborn babies, and how preborn offers a, a, a sonogram that will allow those mothers to see their children, and 80% of them decide that they're not going to destroy their babies. They're going to go on and carry the child to term. But we know that this is not just an individual matter. It's also kind of a cosmic matter. It's a, it's a nationwide problem uh, that really took on a, a nationwide um, aspect when the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973. Our guest today is a renowned uh, legal scholar, Sharif Gerges of Notre Dame Law School, and I won't give you his entire background. It would take up the, the, the rest of the program to do that in the time we have, but he was a law clerk for uh, Justice Alito and, uh, and uh, has done a great deal in the law ever since, but he's here to talk to me today about, about Roe v. Wade and, and where, where's the, 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 what is the likely legal evolution of this? Are we going to see any progress or are we forever stuck uh, in the situation where it's an ongoing social and political battle? So, Professor Gerges, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate this. And um, thank you for having uh, me on. Well, look, it's it's my pleasure. Now, I I was told that that you've got you're hopeful about where we're going with Roe v. Wade. I am very hopeful. Yeah, I think the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade this year. This year. This year, it's got a case. It's got a case there where it's reviewing a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. And um, I think for, for a bunch of reasons I'm happy to discuss, I think the most likely outcome is that the court overturns Roe v. Wade and says, this is, we're sending this issue back to the state. The states can do what they want. Well, okay. Tell us why you think that is, because of course, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, in a, in a former life, I practiced law. And, and one of the things that we lawyers know is that courts are very reluctant to overturn precedent. Um, why do you think that that is going to be the way they go? Um, I agree. They are reluctant to overturn precedent in general. But I guess um, I think that for a couple of reasons. First of all, in this case, there is no way for them to uphold the Mississippi law 
without overturning Roe and Casey. Roe v. Wade and then this follow-on case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which basically doubled down on most of the uh, doctrines set out in Roe. Um, so, so if you assume, and I, you know, it takes four justices to decide to take a case, which means that it could not have been um, entirely the decision of the liberal justices. Um, uh, and so, uh, so there's a question about, well, why did they take the case? And um, if you assume that there were some conservative votes, presumably they want to find a way to uphold this law. They think it's a permissible law. And if they're not going to be able to do that without overturning Roe v. Wade, um, then they're going to have to get rid of Roe. And then the only question in people's minds has been, are they going to find a way to go halfway where they'll say, all right, we're not going to stick with exactly the rules in Roe v. Wade and Casey. Um, we are going to uphold the law, though. And so we're just going to draw a new line. So Roe and Casey say that you can't ban abortions before 24 weeks of pregnancy, which is viability. And this law, again, bans it at 15 weeks. So the question is, are they going to say, we're upholding this law, so we're moving the line back to 15 weeks or a little before 15 weeks, but not all the way back to conception. And when I sat down and tried to figure out what, what possible middle grounds they could draw, what new lines they could draw, and what legal sources they could cite to support those lines, I just didn't see an option. So I thought they really only have two choices, go all or nothing. And if everybody's right to assume that they do want to uphold this law, then I think they have to go all the way and, and uh, leave the issue to the states. Look, the first time I studied Roe v. Wade, I was in college, then went on to law school and, and uh, studied it more there. But the conclusion that was always the consensus for, for, for those of us who saw it uh, for what it was, really, thought that it, it was it was poorly reasoned that that and and that it was arbitrary that it it almost seemed as if the judges decided that they were going to uphold abortion and it was only a question of figuring out how and uh, and they came up with this system pretty much out of whole cloth and so it was really bad law from the very beginning for those of us who opposed it anyway and uh, you know I mean we just didn't find it to be terribly compelling um, to what extent do you think the justices coming along now are looking at that and going, you know, look, it really never was very good law in the first place. And now maybe we have an opportunity to, to finally correct it. Yeah, I think that's definitely how they'll be thinking about it. I mean, you're right that when, when Roe came down, scholars on the left and the right said, you know, whether we like the results or not, this is terrible reasoning. John Hart Ely, who's the an avid supporter of abortion rights. He was a Harvard law professor and then dean of Stanford Law School. He said, Roe is bad constitutional law because it doesn't even give a sense of an obligation to try to be constitutional law at all. It's just making stuff up. And I think the the court is more originalist and more bound to history and legal texts and sources than the Roe court was by a million miles. So there's no way, in my view, that they would want to repeat the mistake of Roe and, and Casey, which is to make, make stuff up, um, which is why I don't think they would make stuff up to defend a new line. And if there's no legal source or other legal argument for a new line between zero and 15 weeks that says you can go this far but no farther, um, then I think they're, 
they're going to go all the way. And as you pointed out, you know, they don't like to overturn precedent. But one of the questions when they are deciding whether to overturn it is how well reasoned was the precedent? And if everyone agrees that the precedent here was very poorly reasoned, that's going to count in favor of overturning it. Now, some people hearing you say what you just said about turning overturning Roe v. Wade will just kind of lose it and just go, we, you know, we can't outlaw abortion. We're, it's going to lead to women having uh, back alley abortions again, this kind of thing. But but you're not suggesting that, as much as I'd like to see it happen, <laughs> you're not suggesting that this is going to mean abortion is outlawed. That's right. This is super important. And people people generally misunderstand this. So if, if the court overturns Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean abortion is banned everywhere. doesn't mean abortion is allowed everywhere. It means it's up to the states. So you're going to have New York and California doubling down on abortion rights and providing funding for women to get abortion. You're going to have many other states saying we're going to ban it from conception onward with exceptions for life the mother's life and maybe a few other narrow exceptions, and then you'll have stuff in between. So this is just a question of who gets to decide what abortion law looks like, and the court would be saying it's not for judges, it's for lawmakers. Which is much more in keeping with what the founding fathers had in mind in terms of each state being its own laboratory and being able to decide matters that were not a matter of federal jurisdiction, and and having the people of those states come to different conclusions about different things. Um, whether whether one agrees with those conclusions or not, that's much more consistent, it seems to me, uh, with federalism, with the Constitution uh, that we've been given than the Supreme Court making these broad, sweeping, nationwide cultural and spiritual and moral decisions, really, which I don't think the Founding Fathers envisioned at all. Um what do you think about that? Do you think this this uh, this can maybe bring about a resurgence of respect for the Tenth Amendment and the fact that you know state sovereignty still has some meaning? Yeah, there will definitely be um, people who see this as a as a victory for states' rights and for the ability of the people to govern themselves. The way to to prove that the Constitution didn't put this issue in the hands of judges is to look at the argument that Roe itself gave the other view. It said, you know, there's a part of the Constitution that says that states can't deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And in general, that means that if we're going to fine you or jail you or sentence you to death, we've got to give you a fair trial, a notice, and a hearing, and so on. But the court said, well, even though that just sounds like it's regulating the procedures for taking away somebody's rights, we're going to read it to say that there are some rights that you can't take away ever, no matter how good the procedure is, and abortion is one of them. But it had no real grounding. So it certainly has no grounding in the text. It has no real grounding in the history. There's a by the time that amendment was passed, Fourteenth Amendment, three quarters of the states banned abortion from conception. So there's no way those states passed the, enacted this amendment, adopted this amendment, and also adopted laws that they thought were clearly inconsistent with the amendment. Um, that's one of many ways to see how Roe was really without legal foundation. Well, I'll tell you, your report, uh, I think, is going to make a lot of people very happy. Of course, we will find out exactly what the Supreme Court decides. And when they do, I'd love to have you come back and uh, and give us your analysis of the, the nature of that decision 
uh, because I'm sure whichever way it goes, there's going to be a lot of discussion about that Mississippi case. I'd happy to be very happy to do that and to and to eat crow if it turns out that I was wrong. <laughs> well, I hope you won't have to do that because I hope they do throw it back to the states. But Professor Sharif Gerges, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Looking forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. All right. All right, folks, the number is 888-589-8840. I'm going to try to get some of your calls in in the next segment as we talk a little bit more about crime uh, and about COVID as well. Back in a moment. It's my turn. Here is your host for My Turn, Don Wildman. Paul has some words for us in 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You know, I'm a rich man. Some people I know will deny that. They they look at my salary, my bank account, what possessions I have. They by no means consider me a rich man. They wouldn't even go so far as say that I was in the middle bracket, much less in the upper bracket. But like I said, I'm a rich man. I'm a rich man. I'm rich because of my heritage. I came from a home where parents loved me, provided for my needs to the best of their ability, sacrificed things they very much needed so that I could have advantages they never had. I'm a rich man. I have a wife who loves me. She puts up with all my faults, stands beside me, pulls from me when the going is rough. No, she's, she's no Hollywood star. But most of the stars in Hollywood cannot hold a light to her when it comes to real beauty. Yes, I'm a rich man. I have four wonderful children. I have um, five grandchildren. Children and grandchildren who give hope and promise of a better tomorrow. I love them. want the best for them and try to bring them up in a Christian environment like my parents did before me. I'm a rich man. I have a job, a very meaningful job. Not much money in it, nor prestige, but it gives me a chance to help my fellow man, to lift the sights of others to a higher level, give my life to a cause that will leave the world a better place in which to live. I'll probably never reach the top of my profession, but I can face life knowing I did my best in the job which I felt my Creator wanted me to do. I have a job which I consider important because He considers it important. And again, I'm a, I'm a rich man. I want to say it one more time. I'm a rich man. I live in a free country. Millions and millions of people cannot know the richness of that. They live under the shadow of a dictator. Millions more here in the country where I live have never realized that freedom is an obligation, not a license. Thus, they're poor. Poor because they have not learned that freedom is not a license to drag men down into the depths of filth, but that freedom is an obligation to lift myself and my fellow man to greater and greater heights, pressing on toward that high mark to which our Maker calls us. Again, I'll say it. I'm a rich man. I have friends who are friends. They stay with me through the good times and the bad. They encourage me. They cause me to try harder. They keep me from giving up. When the clouds of darkness are around me, these friends of mine are beside me. They're true friends. The doors to their homes are open to me as mine is to them. I'm a rich man. 
I've found what many still are searching for. I've found forgiveness and understanding and help. I've found them in a crucified Galilean. He takes my weaknesses and makes me strong. He takes my fears and makes me brave. He takes my doubts and makes me believe. He assures me of what every person wants to know, that there will be life after death for me. Like I said, I'm a rich man. Oh, uh, by the way, can I borrow a dime? This has been My Turn with Don Wildman, a production of the American Family Association. The Awakening. The Awakening. Download and listen at your leisure with the podcast page at AFR.net. Now, back to our host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. The number is 888-589-8840. Let me just say a couple of things, folks, about this crime wave that we are experiencing, and it is bad. It is bad, and it seems to be getting worse. Uh, I'm sure you all have seen here again uh, this this poor child. Uh, I say poor child, you know what I mean. This this young lady, Brianna Kupfer, stabbed to death um, in a, a upscale retail furniture store. Uh, but a 40-year-old woman, Michelle Alyssa, pushed in front of an ongoing subway train. Uh, one man killed with a, 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 a knockout sucker punch that caused a fatal head injury. Um, one man, uh, actually a woman, shot in a Burger King. When she was told to open the register, she reached down to get the keys to open the register, and the man shot her dead on the spot. Uh, and on and on and on it goes. Uh, 88-year-old woman in San Francisco who a man just attacked and tried to beat unmercifully because she wouldn't let go of her pocketbook, and he just punched her uh, all about the face. 88-year-old woman, 79-year-old man punched in the head. This stuff is just, it's... It's unconscionable. But, and you know, of course, I think the most direct causes of this are the attacks on police officers over the last two years as a bunch of racist outlaws out killing willy-nilly, killing people, killing black men in particular. We got to defund the police. We got to dismantle the police. We got to reimagine policing and got to close police departments, whatever. That, which has demoralized the police departments, found they found themselves under attack and basically having to be defensive so that they don't end up in jail. And in the meantime, the criminals are ambushing police and killing police. We've had an increase in the number of police murdered last year. We have a, a major increase in the number of police ambushes where police are tricked into coming to certain locations so that people can kill them or severely injure them. Uh, so that's part of it. The second part is these George Soros prosecutors who believe it's their job to release every criminal back on the street to do more harm. Look, folks, there's only one way to lower the crime problem short term, and that is you got to lock people up who are criminals. When they, and, and you can't wait until they escalate to murder. When they're violent, when they're, I mean, this idea that if you rob somebody at gunpoint, but you don't shoot them, it's going to be, it's going to be pled down to a misdemeanor is insane. 
that person will ultimately escalate to killing somebody. This is this is just, it's madness. And yet George Soros, thank you, George. This this oh my goodness gracious, this man, he is a scourge on our country. He really is. He is a scourge. And by the way, let me say this, just as a footnote. This idea that criticizing George Soros, you know, the left said, you're, you're anti-Semitic. I said, yeah, I didn't even know George Soros was Jewish. I was criticizing the man on the merits of what he does. And so, folks, we can never allow ourselves to be cowed by attacks. Oh, you're being anti-Semitic. You're being racist. I don't care what you, I don't care what they think. You can't, you can't blame China for the... The, the, the COVID-19 virus, that's, that's, you're being racist. I don't, please. I blame them and I don't apologize for it. Yeah, I, that's why I call it the communist Chinese Wuhan virus. Because as far as I'm concerned, this thing was an instrument of biological warfare unleashed upon the world. And China, the communist Chinese regime is to blame. So, yeah, we can't let ourselves get hung up on that. So, so, and so George Soros is, is, there's no doubt, part of that. But we also are hearing that as a result of all these lockdowns and all this mask wearing and all the stuff that's been imposed on people, that we're seeing a lot more and even enhanced cases of mental uh, breakdown, uh, mental illness, people acting out, even increased suicides, even kids. I don't think that's the main cause, but I don't. I have no doubt that that's contributing. No doubt that it's a contributing factor, and all of these things are things that could have been handled, and if handled properly, we would not be facing the crime epidemic we're facing right now. And, and by the way, here's one I was just surprised to hear this. I didn't know this until this morning. Do you know that train robberies are up 356 percent? Train robberies. Yeah, we're back to the wild, wild west now, where trains are being robbed of every manner of goods being shipped on trains. We, we've got bandits now who have gone back to robbing trains en masse. So basically, these leftists have unleashed a plague of crime on this country. Broad daylight carjackings, bold, brazen, taking somebody's car at a gas station in broad daylight and daring anybody to say or do anything about it. We, we, need, we need leadership that cares about the American people and doesn't, doesn't care about punishing criminals. It's not, doesn't, doesn't lay awake at night at all worrying about punishing criminals who are harming people but are thankful for the opportunity to put them away for as long as the law will allow. That's the only way the rest of us are going to be kept safe. 888-589-8840 is the number. Let's get some of your calls in. Let's go to Glenda in Mississippi. Glenda, welcome. Yes. Uh, hello, uh, attorney um, Jackson. <laughs> Hi, Glenda. You know, I listen to you uh, every opportunity that I get on well, American Family Radio, okay? 
You know, uh, my my uh, my mother told me when I was a little girl that it was a man that was named his last name was Lewis Jackson that he was my daddy, uh, Attorney Jackson. Ah, okay. I can Linda. accept that. I well, can accept that, okay? Because okay. I was told he killed the man in the juke house. Uh huh. Nowhere in the world was I going to accept a murderer as no daddy of mine, okay? Wow. Okay, I thought, Glenda, I thought you had something on Roe v. Wade. Uh, but, Glenda, thank you so much for the call. Sorry to hear about uh, that, that rather tragic family circumstance. Uh, let's get to Mike in West Virginia. Mike, welcome. Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to comment about uh, activists lying to people. Uh, back in 1970, an activist re- released a recording t- titled Whitey on the Moon. And if you Google that, you'll find that the gist of that is about how every messed up thing in his life is messed up because Whitey's on the moon. <laughs> and his apparent solution is for him to get more of other people's tax money in his mailbox. Well, now that nobody's been to the moon since December of 1972, how would you say he has succeeded in creating heaven on Earth? Oh, my goodness, Mike. Thank you so much for the call, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, folks, a lot of delusional stuff going on around there. I, and I, I get, your, get your point, Mike. And it's, 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 it's the same thing. I, I haven't heard that said that way, but it's the same thing today. It's, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. They did this to me. It's their fault. Really, it's the criminals back on the street because, after all, the system has been unfair to them. And they're victims of oppression and social injustice and all that. I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's exactly the same thing, Mike. Thank you so much for the call. Folks, the number is 888 8840. Look, we are a nation based on the principles of individual liberty and personal responsibility. Period. Your destiny is in your own hands before God. Okay? And you and God are the ones who will determine your destiny. And when you get a hold of God and believe God, that he opens doors and no one can close them. No one can stop you from fulfilling the destiny God has in mind for you, period. And when you do the crime, you just might as well get ready and do the time. What does the American Family Association stand for? AFA upholds the truth that all human beings, including the unborn, are created in the image of God and are worthy of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation. Thank you for standing with us. In honor of the grand opening of the Don Wildman Center for Cultural Transformation on February 1st, AFA will re-release The God Who Speaks on our new streaming platform and in a special limited edition DVD set. The God Who Speaks, tracing evidence for the Bible's inspiration and authority, was originally released in 2018. This special set includes features like two hours of new footage and a Sunday school curriculum. Learn more at thegodwhospeaks.org. 
Raising Godly Boys with Mark Hancock. The cheetah is the fastest land animal on the planet. They can run up to 60 miles per hour, but the cheetah doesn't run fast just to show off. No, the cheetah runs fast to catch its prey. You see, the Thompson gazelle, the cheetah's favorite prey, has been clocked at a speed of 40 miles per hour. Boys enjoy competition. It's part of their physical and psychological makeup. But ultimately, competition is not just an opportunity to impress others. It's more than that. It's a matter of survival. Boys need competition to help them grow into men. Men who know how to supply the needs of their family. Men who know how to face the challenges life will bring their way. For more ideas on growing boys into godly men, visit TrailLifeUSA or RaisingGodlyBoys.com. You can raise godly boys. Visit RaisingGodlyBoys.com. 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 Is he going to grow out of that? And wow. I, I thought, I wasn't sure. Like, what? And, and I said, Do you mean his autism? And she said, Yes. What did you do to make him like that? Sandra Peoples on Focus on the Family Minute describing when someone tried to make her feel badly about her son's special needs. I was speechless and I thought, Well, there's nothing I did. It reminds me of John 9 when the, the disciples and Jesus are walking and there's the man who was born blind and the disciples stop Jesus and they say, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that made him born, be born blind? And Jesus said, neither, none of the above. <laughs> this man exists to glorify God. And, and, and that the fact that the gospel writers include that for a parent like me brings so much comfort and hope because I can say there is no guilt. You'll hear more encouragement from Sandra at FamilyMinute.org. Back to The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson on American Family Radio. The number is 888-589-8840. I mean, right now, for example, folks... Um, Senators Sinema and Manchin are both being excoriated by their Democrat colleagues for refusing to go along with an end to the filibuster and refusing to vote for this uh, John Lewis bill, or the, the, I guess they're calling it now the Freedom to Vote Act or something. But, but they realize this is, this is ultimately not about trying to suppress anybody's right to vote. This is about trying to bring integrity to the voting system. And that's why I say again, notice that the people who are criticizing the, the reforms that have been made in state houses, state legislatures across the country, never mention specific provisions. They never say, now look, look at this provision that was just passed in such and such a state. Now, here's what's wrong with that. They never do that. What they do is say, this is racist. This is voter suppression. This is Jim Crow 2.0. And they're trying to take us back to the segregation era. Is that, what are you talking about? Well, they don't want to talk about that. They, because demagoguery can't deal with facts. Facts don't work. So what you need is broad, sweeping lies that will convince everybody to be all worked up emotionally. And right now, thank God. I mean, I don't know Manchin. I don't know Cinema, But thank God that they're not buying into it. 
And maybe their constituents don't want it. Maybe they, as a matter of conscience, they won't do it. I don't know what the reason is, but I'm glad that they're not buying into it because this is nothing but demagoguery on steroids. That's all it is. Nobody is going to be deprived of the right to vote. And as a matter of fact, as I said before, the main criticism on voter IDs, over 70 percent of members of the black community believe that voter ID is perfectly appropriate and not discriminatory in any way against anybody. Again, the number is 888-589-8840. But Cinema and Mansion, of course, racists. Yeah, right. That's the that folks, that is the last refuge of the scoundrel to call somebody a racist trying to win an argument that you can't win with logic and facts. Okay, let's come back to the phones. You've been waiting patiently. Sheena in Texas, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. How you doing? I am blessed, Sheena. How are you doing? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Hallelujah. Good. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, I had to pray before I called in. Okay. Because, uh, you know, I listen to y'all, and I don't agree with everything that you say. And that's only because my spiritual eyes are open. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do is, as Father, to open our spiritual eyes and ears to the truth of what's going on in this world. Because he said that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right. Against well, well, Sheena, every, Sheena, Sheena, everything you're saying I agree with. So I want you to get to whatever it is you think you might I'm not agree with. Okay. Because, yes. you know, we got other people waiting. I just want to get you, get you to your point no, so we can make fine. sure that gets out there. No, 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 that's fine. You said you, you don't believe that, uh, that the police department is, racist and what's going on you know with all everything that's going on mm-hmm. it's it's not a police issue it is not these people issue it is a demonic issue now if you do his history research the police department was created by the kkk okay 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 sheena sheena that's not true. That is not true. I don't know where you got the history from. That is absolutely, categorically not true. Police departments were created in urban areas. Now, I'm not saying there weren't militias and things created to try to control the behavior of slaves during slavery time. But police departments were created first and foremost in the Northeast. And of course, as populations grew, there was a need to create some kind of law and order and police departments were created for that purpose. Uh, and remember, many of these people came from Europe where they were already police. I mean, they were accustomed to that as a tradition. So anybody who tells you that police departments grew out of the KKK has lied to you. That is absolutely, categorically not true, Sheena. But listen, thank you so much for the call, Sheena. And I'm a student of history. So, you know, you said study your history. But remember, people use history to try to get us to think a certain way. Um, Now, look, thanks. So thanks for the call, Sheena. I do appreciate it. Look, here's the thing, folks. Police departments have diminished. They have people have retired. Budgets have been cut. Uh, every almost every police department, I can't say every, but most police departments around the country are facing shortages of personnel. That means there are fewer police 
on the job. Now, if police are the problem being created in the black community, why are so many more black people dying in the streets of the cities as a result of murder if the problem was the police? Clearly, the problem was not the police because there are fewer police and over 2,500 more black people were murdered in the streets of our cities in 2021 than 2020 than happened in 2019. We don't have the complete numbers for 2021 yet. So, uh, look, I, I, I am not backing off of that. Police departments are not racist. Does that mean that you can't find a police officer anywhere in America who might not have racial animus of some kind? There are a million law enforcement officers in America. You get a million of anything. You're going to find somebody who's not right for some reason. But police departments are not out hunting down black men and not out committing crimes against black men and are not out trying to discriminate against black men, period. And the police departments weren't created by the, didn't grow out of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, come on. Uh, but I, I don't blame her because that's the kind of garbage that is thrown out there to try to get people to think a certain way. All right, let's get back to your calls. Uh, let's go to JC in Texas. JC, welcome. Hey, Bishop. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Thank you uh, to the screener. That's crazy. Um, I'm sorry, you're, you're past uh, okay. uh, what these right. people are calling and talking about is making me laugh. Anyways, uh, it's making me laugh because it's uh, how, how are you, you know, uh, interacting with people that they're giving you that reaction anyways i'd like to praise god that we're even coming back to roe versus wade so we can send it back to states and let the states recognize that this is not a good thing i'd like to praise god for that uh but i'd also like to say uh man thank you just just thank you thank you to your call screener thank you sir appreciate y'all well thank you you. please uh please mention afr to your friends and your brothers and sisters, everybody. Mention AFR so they can get some good news in their life and hear some good stuff every now and again. (laughs) All right. Thank you, JC. God bless you. Uh, And look, I would echo JC. Just please tell people about us. Spread the word. They can listen to us on their smartphone now so they don't even have to have a radio station in their community. But thank you for the call. The number is 888-589-8840. We still got about four or five minutes. We can get two or three more calls in. So if uh, and I think I've got one or two lines available. So let's see. Oh, you've been waiting patiently. Let's get to Mark in Ohio. Mark, welcome. Hey, Bishop. Thanks for taking my call. I just want to say uh, ditto to JC and what he said about you and, and the show. But I had a class in college, a sociology class, and the question on one of our exams was, uh, in one of our papers, what was what deters crime more? A greater likelihood of being caught? or a greater punishment for being caught. And it seems today with defunding the police and district attorneys basically uh, downplaying what they're going to charge criminals with, we're not doing either. So the natural outgrowth is going to be an increase in crime. And it's happening. It is happening. And, And not only an increase in the amount of crime, Mark, but the brazenness of it, that tells you that people are, the criminal class is imbibing this notion that nothing's going to happen because we're seeing crimes of of far more brazenness than we have in the past. I mean, daylight carjackings and, and, you know, sucker punching people in broad daylight, uh, walking down the street. I mean, just stuff that 
frankly, we've always had crime, of course, but this, this stuff that we're seeing now is unprecedented. So you raise a very, very good point. When, when they figure out that, A, we're either not going to get caught because there are not enough police to police us, or B, if we get caught, we're going to be released right away because it's going to be pled down to a misdemeanor, even if I use the gun, uh, it's open season. Thank you for the call, Mark. Really do appreciate it. Okay, let's try to get a couple more in here. Uh, let's go to Craig in Kansas. Craig, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Bishop, uh, I was just traveling through the state of Kansas, and I wanted to say I am so refreshed by hearing your message, your facts, your truth, that it's actually being spoken out there because it's so hard to come by. So I'm so grateful that I'm on this trip, and I got a chance to hear you today. Well, thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for the call. By the way, folks, quickly, in 1838, the first police department was established in the city of Boston. That was my recollection, but I didn't want to say it without verifying it. And then New York City in 1845, then Albany and Chicago in 1851, New Orleans and Cincinnati in 1853, Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey, Baltimore in 1857, and on and on and on. So it starts, the police departments per se started in the Northeast. And of course, there had been a history that they that many of these folks brought from Europe. So, yeah, this idea that police came out of the Ku Klux Klan. Do I have time for one more? Uh, let me try, Michael. You don't have much time, but but I'm I'm getting you on. I'm making a command decision, Michael. You welcome to the program. Thank you, Bishop. I'll try to make it quick. Uh, you mentioned George Soros. There's a 60 minute interview. I believe Mike Wallace did it back in the 90s with George Soros. And Mike Wallace asked George Soros about selling out his own people in Hungary during World War II to the Nazis. He was a young teenager. And Wallace asked him, he said, do you have any regrets over that? And Soros said, no, it was the time of my life. And you could tell the reporter was wow. stunned with his answer. He's Michael, thank you. Thank you so much for the call. Michael, got to go. Yeah, uh, George Soros is not a good guy. And the influence he's having in our country is not good. And he could have done that in Hungary and repented and be a different person, but he hasn't chosen to become a good person. Folks, that's going to do it for today. Thank you all so much for your calls. Thank you for your prayers and your support. And remember, we cannot be defeated if we will not quit because we are on God's side. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.